Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Heather Levitis, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We're super excited to share with you the lectures we've prepared, so thank you for tuning in to our first task. Before we start, we'd like to give credit where credit is due, as the creation of this lecture series is based on notes generated from several sources, including Essentials of Plastic Surgery, edited by Dr. Jeffrey Janis, and Plastic Surgery, Indications in Practice, edited by Dr. Bauman Grylon. We're here today with our subject matter expert in rhinoplasty, Duke Plastic Surgery Division Chief, Dr. Jeffrey Marcus, who's also the president of the Rhinoplasty Society. Thanks, Rachel and, and Heather, and congratulations on starting the In-Service Insights. Uh, from the beginning, when you first brought it up, I thought it was an incredible idea. I think that it's going to be a valuable educational tool for, uh, for residents, and it provides them an opportunity to learn while doing, frankly, other things, running or uh, getting around. So uh, I think this is a great way to teach and a great part of the future, and I'm looking forward to this and uh, all of the future casts. This particular one is of interest to me because it's a, a topic that I love, and um, I'm excited to get started. Great. Thank you, Dr. Marcus. First, let's begin by discussing anatomy of the nasal vaults, then we'll move on to an overview of surgical approaches, graft types, and complications. Heather, why don't you get us started with the nasal anatomy? Sounds good. The blood supply to the nose comes primarily from both the ophthalmic and facial arteries, which branch off the internal and external carotid arteries. Do you know what branches of the ophthalmic arteries supply the nose? I would say the anterior ethmoidal and dorsal nasal arteries. Absolutely. The ophthalmic artery supplies the anterior ethmoidal and dorsal nasal arteries, and the facial artery gives off the superior labial artery, angular artery, and the lateral nasal artery. During an open tip rhinoplasty, which artery is sacrificed and what is the primary blood supply to the nasal tip? During an open tip rhinoplasty, the columellar arteries are sacrificed, leaving the lateral nasal artery to be the primary blood supply to the nasal tip. This is typically found 2 to 3 millimeters above the alar groove. Yes, very important to remember that. After an open tip rhinoplasty, the lateral nasal artery is the primary blood supply to the nasal tip. This is a great uh, great point to make about blood supply to the tip. A number of years ago, and it's been a while, but Rod Rorick did a paper on the anatomy uh, of the blood supply to the tip, which is so frequently cited. In fact, I think that it actually won PSEF essay competition uh, award in that year. It was a great paper. Um, it shows uh, where these arteries are located. And yes, in an open rhinoplasty, the columellar arteries uh, are divided um, by, by definition. The lateral nasal artery, though, um, they come in along the alar crease, and they're often seen in rhinoplasty, and there are two particular maneuvers that potentially can damage them. One is in alar base excisions. So if you're doing alar base excisions, that's one uh, particular thing that you need to look out for. The second, which people don't always appreciate, is when creating a pocket for a lateral crural strut graft, which goes down to the piriform and is anchored, that, that artery is seen almost every time in the skin, in the skin flap that's raised just above the, the lateral cruise. So I think that's an important point to make. However, I'll also say that in a number of cases, um, I, I think that you can actually uh, create an injury to both the vessels, and you're not you're not going to you're not going to get nasal tip necrosis every time. So I think there's you know there's still a little bit more more to it. Awesome. 
Let's quickly review the relevant nasal innervation now that we talked about the blood supply. Not only important for in-service knowledge, but also for performing closed nasal reductions, especially by yourself in the emergency department in the middle of the night, which is when these always seem to come up. Don't forget the acronym, really important. The nose is primarily innervated by the ophthalmic and maxillary branches. These include supratrochlear and supraorbital, and the septum is innervated by the septal branch of the anterior ephemoidal nerve. This is important for closed nasal reductions in which the septum is manipulated. The musculature is also important for rhinoplasty and includes the levator labii superioris aliquine nasi, which contributes to external nasal valve patency, and the depressor septi, which can shorten the lip and decrease tip projection. Heather, do you know what this deformity is typically referred to? What we were talking about is called smiling deformity, or when the depressor septi decreases tip projection when the patient smiles. Sometimes people refer to that deformity as a, as a plunging tip, so with contraction of the depressor septi, the tip comes downward. But this is definitely a point of controversy, and there's going to be a lot of um, additional uh, uh, literature about this in the, in the coming months and, and years. I think that probably we overestimated the amount of depression that that muscle provides on the tip, and people, some people say that uh, the plunging tip does not plunge. What they mean is that the position of the tip stays stable when the person smiles, but that the ala go up. And so the tip relative to the ala appears as though it's plunging, but it's actually not. So if in a case like that, resetting the, the rotation of the tip and putting the tip in a proper position at rest will help the problem, but the ala will still go up, and so that relative difference would still be there. The other thing is the approach to the depressors. So if one is going to resect the depressors, it's typically done through a, a limited upper buccal sulcus incision, and a section of the depressor muscle is removed on each side. And that can effectively uh, limit the amount of movement for patients who truly are plunging. But you have to remember that most of those patients will probably also complain of some prolonged swelling and also some numbness of the upper lip. So it's something that has to be discussed. Thank you, Dr. Marcus. When considering nasal anatomy and facial analysis, it is important to understand the nasal vaults. The upper vaults consist of the paired nasal bones. These vary in length, but are typically two to two and a half centimeters long, widest at the nasal frontal suture and narrowest at the nasal frontal angle. The middle vault includes the upper lateral cartilages and dorsal septum. Heather, what is the orientation of the upper lateral cartilage with respect to the nasal bone? The upper lateral cartilages are posterior to the nasal bones, approximately 6 to 8 millimeters, which was a factoid tested on the in-service exam several years ago. Correct. The upper lateral cartilages lie posterior to the nasal bones in the cephalad direction. This is called the keystone area and is the widest part of the nasal dorsum. The middle vault also contains the internal nasal valve. Do you know what makes up a cross-section of the structure? The internal nasal valve is bordered by the caudal edge of the upper lateral cartilage, the septum, the anterior portion of the inferior turbinate, and the nasal floor. Right. And the internal nasal valve is important for regulating airflow resistance. Its normal angle is 10 to 15 degrees and is the narrowest portion of the nasal aperture, contributing up to 50% of nasal airway resistance. What maneuver tests for internal nasal valve collapse? The caudal maneuver tests for internal nasal valve collapse. It's done, or originally described, by pulling the ipsilateral cheek laterally. Improved air movement confirms internal nasal valve collapse. 
I have a point that I can add here about the internal valve, and it's, it is a really important point. Uh, Mark Constantian uh, is uh, a renowned rhinoplasty surgeon, and anyone who's interested in learning about the internal valve or nasal function should really read some of his work. But um, you made a great point. The internal valve does is often associated with an angle of 10 to 15 degrees, but that's really that refers to the internal valve angle. A valve is a cross-section, and that valve angle is only part of it. A cross-section in any fluid dynamic system is, is a limiter. Uh, a valve is what uh, creates the resistance and limits the total flow. The narrower it is, the, narrow, the less total flow you have. So the internal valve in most people is that site of minimal cross-sectional area, and it's the place where we usually do things to improve the, uh, that total aperture. That could be a septoplasty. It could be supporting the uh, upper lateral cartilage. It could be reducing the turbinate. All of those things uh, add to the, uh, the cross-sectional area. The other issues um, with the caudal maneuver where there's uh, been some misconception, the idea of putting your finger on the cheek and pulling it out laterally, pretty much anybody, if you do that, will breathe better. So that's really not an, a, you know, an accurate caudal maneuver. An accurate caudal maneuver would be when you place your finger on the cheek and just stabilize uh, the, uh, the upper lateral, just place it there and stabilize it, not pulling on it. And when you breathe in deeply, what it does uh, against that, the negative pressure, it stabilizes the upper lateral. So when you breathe in deeply, if your breathing is the same um, or better than, uh, than normal, then that would be um, a positive caudal. And finally, the lower vault, which is composed of the lower lateral cartilages, begins with the region of the abutment between the upper lateral and lower lateral cartilages. This is called the scroll area. The lower lateral cartilage is composed of the medial, middle, and lateral crua. An important area to remember is the angle of divergence. Next question, Heather. What is the angle of divergence? The angle of divergence is the angle between the middle crura and was asked in a previous in-service question. The ideal angle is between 30 and 60 degrees. So I have a question for you guys here. So do you know what's the deformity that would be described when the angle of divergence is larger than 30 to 60 degrees? So what that would do is it would cause the tip points to be more widely separated. Um, I think I would say boxy tip. That's right. So a boxy tip. When the dome-defining points are widely separated, that means that the angle of divergence is larger than what you've described at 30 to 60, and uh, there are ways of correcting that. So, well done. The external nasal valve is also an important part of the lower vault and is a, an important part of the nasal analysis for rhinoplasty. It is bounded by the lateral crus, ala, and septum. If you see nostril collapse on inspiration, you should be thinking incompetence of the external nasal valve. Another consideration in evaluation of the patient are the turbinates, which are paired bony structures that regulate and humidify inspired air. The majority of airflow is through the middle meatus, but remember, the majority of airflow resistance is at the internal nasal valve. These structures can become hypertrophied in patients with septal deviation. This is important to evaluate prior to rhinoplasty. If turbinate hypertrophy is noted, afrin may be used to differentiate between bony and mucosal hypertrophy. Remember, the septum is a quadrangular piece of cartilage that articulates with, per with the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid and vomer. So what would you describe that there are then, um, there are several areas for potential airway obstruction, and the ones that you have to keep in mind are the ones you've stated. There's the external valve, there's the internal valve, there's going to be the septum, which can be deviated and thereby affecting these valves, and then you have the turbinate. So those are kind of the four things that you're looking for on an analysis. 
Um, as far as the valves go, you have static, uh, you can have static stenotic stenosis, or you can have dynamic vestibular collapse. So um, they're both. Dynamic means that it looks, it's fine when the person is at rest or breathing uh, shallowly, but when they breathe in deeply, the negative pressure causes the, uh, the valves to come inward. That's dynamic. So it does make some difference. And then as far as turbinates go, uh, the anterior head of the inferior turbinate is the portion of the, of, the, of the inferior turbinate that lies right along the internal valve. So if you have inferior turbinate hypertrophy and you want to treat it, and typically you know, we do that with various types of, uh, of reductions or lateralizations, what you're really worried about is what's going on in that anterior one-third of the inferior turbinate. What's happening posteriorly usually isn't as much, a, as much of, a, of a factor. And then with the septum, you know, you're looking for deviations um, in either one way or the other. Deviations are usually they can be C-shaped or S-shaped, and they can involve spurs, which spurs usually occur where the cartilage meets bone. So that would be along the maxillary crest or posteriorly along the perpendicular plate. Bauman Guyron has a great article on classification uh, for septal uh, deviation, which I would refer you to. Um, and correction then uh, can be determined based on, on those problems. Thank you, Dr. Marcus. Moving on to surgical approaches. There are two types discussed in the literature, closed and open. Heather, tell me what you know about these two approaches. Generally speaking, the closed approach uses hidden incisions and is advantageous in that it results in decreased edema, operative time, and a faster recovery. Disadvantages include poor visualization and difficult dissections. There are several different incisions that can be used for this approach depending on the area of the nasal complex that needs to be accessed. Great job. Incisions for a closed um, approach include intercartilaginous, transcartilaginous, and marginal for alar incisions, uh, and transviction and Killian incisions for the septal incisions. Let's go over these. I will start with the alar incisions first. So first, we start with the transcartilaginous incision. These are located at the level of the lower lateral cartilages. Next, the intercartilaginous incision. These are located between the upper lateral cartilage and the lower lateral cartilage. And lastly, the marginal incision. These are located at the alar rim. And then for the septal incisions, the transfiction incision, the incision here is made at the membranous and cartilaginous junctions. This is typically more for caudal work and for a hanging polymella. And then a limited transfiction incision is the same. It leaves attachments at the medial cruel foot plates. And then a hemi-transfiction incision is a unilateral incision at the junction of the caudal septum, mucocutaneous junction. And then finally, a Killian incision is posterior to the caudal septum, and this is more for a deviated septum. Wow, Rachel, that's a lot of different incisions, so let's try to review some of that. If we were to perform a closed-approach rhinoplasty for a patient with excessive polymelar show, which incision would be appropriate for management? That would be a transfiction incision. Again, this is the incision made between the membranous and cartilaginous junctions of the septum and is great for caudal septal work and columellar work. So th that is actually a great description for the incisions, and I'll just add a few things to that as well. The first one, um, Rachel had mentioned a transcartilaginous incision, so that would be an incision that goes actually through the lower lateral cartilage. That's really not used very much anymore. Sometimes people called that an intracartilaginous incision. It was useful when people used to try to incorporate a cephalic trim in with the exposure because it went through the cartilage itself. So not used very much. 
the intercartilaginous incision is used um, quite a bit, especially in closed rhinoplasty. It's between the lower and the upper laterals, and then it continues on with one of the transfiction-type incisions, typically like a hemi-transfiction. So with that combination, and they are in continuity, you can get up and along the entire dorsum very, very easily. The transfiction that you mentioned, the full transfiction, is the incision made at that membranous and cartilaginous junction, um, and the hemi-transfiction is when it's only done on one side. So if you do a full transfiction, you've basically gone through both sides. If you do a hemi-transfiction, it's only one side. When you do a full transfiction incision, people say that the tip needs to be resupported because it, it derives some support from its attachment along the caudal septum, at least on one side. I hope that makes sense. The Killian incision you mentioned as well, people sometimes get confused between a hemi-transfiction and a Killian because they seem the same. The Killian is just a little bit more posterior, so it is behind the, where the caudal septum um, kind of starts. So you're actually incising on the cartilage, whereas in the hemi-transfiction, you're incising between the caudal septum and the medial crura. Do you guys think that makes sense? Yes, thank you. Okay, now let's start talking about surgical techniques now that we have our approaches. Specifically, let's focus on grafts. But first, an interjection with a random factoid that's commonly tested. In the Asian population, the upper lateral cartilage and lower lateral cartilage lengths are similar to non-Asians, but the heights are much shorter. Okay, that's it. Yes, Heather, very high yield. Now let's actually move on to grafts. This overview is in no way comprehensive, but we will cover the major grafts and their indications for use concepts that are highly tested on our exam. Okay, here we go. The nasal tip is dependent on the lower lateral cartilage, soft tissue, and suspensory ligaments of the lower lateral cartilage and upper lateral cartilage. There are many grafts and sutures aimed for tip projection and definition. Here are some that are commonly tested. Heather, can you name some grafts that increase tip projection? Typically, columellar strut grafts, onlay tip grafts, shield grafts, and subdomal grafts all help increase tip projection. And what about the different suture techniques? Well, we have our medial curl sutures, interdomal sutures, and transdomal sutures. Perfect. So I think at this point I can help by adding a little bit more discussion to the influences of tip projection and some differences between the, the various techniques. So we'll start with things that, things that increase tip projection. So there are grafts and there are sutures that can, that can help uh, establish your projection and also the relationships in the infratip uh, and, the, and lobule. We'll start with first, you mentioned before, the medial, medial crural sutures. Okay, so a medial crural suture is a suture that's placed that binds the medial curry together. They're often used to stabilize a columella strut which is placed between them. You can also use medial curral septal sutures which include the septum and also cause some rotation for a drooping tip. So what that means is basically if you place a suture through the medial curry sort of midway down and then you attach them to the caudal septum in particularly up high near the anterior septal angle, depending on where the anterior septal angle is and the distance between those medial curry, you can get rotation from that. If the two start out a little bit far apart and then you put them together and pull them in a, thereby pulling them upward, you will increase rotation. But if the caudal septum and the medial curry are basically touching one another, you may not, you're not going to necessarily change the rotation, but you will stabilize the tip. So a columella strut can be used to stabilize tip projection. A crural septal suture can be used to stabilize projection. And depending on the relationship, you can get rotation from that, from that particular suture. 
So I'll mention a couple of more. Um, we talked, uh, you mentioned about interdomal sutures. An interdomal suture, inter, implies between two things. So an interdomal suture is placed between the two domes and it brings them together. Um, so some people refer to that as a dome binding suture. That makes sense because you're binding the two domes to one another. I don't know that it totally increases projection that much, but the intradomal suture does actually increase projection a little bit. An intradomal suture is a suture that's placed along the, the tip-defining point at the genu on each side individually. And it makes it a little bit more, I don't hate to use the word pointy, um, but it, it, it creates more definition um, and a sharper tip-defining point. When it does that, you get a tiny bit of extra projection. A transdomal suture is usually placed between the medial and lateral portions of each lower lateral cartilage. So you're again bringing you're pulling the two sides together, but a little bit further down from the genu, a little bit more laterally. That is a very powerful suture. What it'll tend to do is it'll bring the, it'll bring the two lateral curae together more closely, but it has some side effects to it. I don't necessarily think these get tested all that often, but uh, one thing that can happen when you pull from the middle of the lateral cruise like that is you can flare out the lower, the lower borders of the, of the lateral curae, and that can be unwanted. Some cases might be wanted. So, these things I mentioned, the struts, climella strut, and the sutures, those are things that help to establish projection on the, um, on the structures that are, uh, that are already native uh, for the most part. The, the other grafts, the onlate graft and onlate tip graft, which sits on top of the domes, um, those are, you could think of them as more as like kind of camouflage things. They're not really structural grafts, really. They're just things that are applied on top of the, uh, the normal anatomy. So an onlate tip graft, PEC was the name that uh, people used to, apply to that. Um, shield graft, that's um, derived by Jack Sheen. Um, those are both uh, different types of grafts that um, can help with definition and projection. A subdomal graft is actually different than all of the things that I mentioned. A subdomal graft is something that Baum and Guyron described. I've used it. It um, has some real good utility, especially for asymmetric tips where the dome points are at different positions and you want to bring them to the same position. Um, and it does, so it can help with a pinch tip deformity or an asymmetric deformity, um, and, and basically puts things um, uh, into alignment and does actually give a little bit of, of projection. And then just to mention also you know, this idea of a pinched nasal deformity. So if you bring the domes um, together too closely, so which of those techniques brings the domes together? I mentioned which suture technique, guys? Right, so if you place an interdomal suture and you, let's say you place it improperly or you tie it too tight, you can bring those dome defining points too closely together. What that does is that it actually makes the angle of divergence too small. And then you get a pinch tip. So you gotta be careful with that suture. It's usually placed um, at the cephalic edge, not really in the middle. You wanna place it so those dome defining points, the genu and the angle of divergence are maintained at that proper 30 to 60 degree mark. So that's what I've got for you for that. Let's talk about the different tip deformities of the nose and how to correct them. Rachel, what do you know about the pinched nasal tip deformity? So Dr. Marcus just alluded to this fact, but this occurs from decreased interdomal distances and appears as a pinched appearance of the nasal tip. As discussed previously, this can be corrected with subdomal grafts and can be caused by interdomal sutures which are typically placed between the domes of the lower lateral cartilages. All right, just to review one more time, uh, because it's hard to keep the different types of graphs straight. The subdomal graphs are the bar-shaped ones that go under the dome. 
and like Rachel and Dr. Marcus said, are the ones that can be used to correct pinched nasal tip deformity. Polybeak deformity is another common deformity of the nose and is frequently tested. This results from fullness of the super tip area and under projection of the nasal tip. Exactly. Correction of this can be accomplished by increasing tip projection. Other common deformities of the nose include boxy tip, bulbous tip, and parenthesis deformity. Dr. Marcus will discuss these deformities with us as they are frequently tested, along with the best methods for correction. Great. Thanks, Heather. Um, I'm going to go back just a little bit, just because I didn't get to complete one aspect of it. Um, talking, We started talking a little bit about tip rotation, and then what maneuvers can be done to alter tip rotation. So, um, in general, you're going to want to either, if you, unless you want it to stay the same, you'll either want to rotate the tip or derotate the tip. I'll start with derotate the tip. That means you want it to come down further. That's actually harder to do, by the way. Um, the best way to do that is typically done with what we call extended spreader grafts. And I know we'll get to, we probably will get to spreader grafts at some point here, but long spreader grafts can drive the tip downward. Basically, you're making them so long that they extend beyond their normal uh, position at the caudal septum, um, and you're basically going to drive the nose downward with them. And they're usually attached to a calumella strut, so it creates kind of a a solid um, L configuration. There are more things to, that, that'll help with rotation than derotation. There are quite a few, actually. The most common one, and probably the one you get tested on the most, is the cephalic trim. Cephalic trim of the lower lateral cartilage moves, removes the cephalic border of the lateral cruse. When you do that, basically, you are taking away cartilage at the, at the scroll region, and you're creating a dead space between the cephalic edge of the lower lateral and the caudal edge of the upper lateral. So there's a space there. And since it's not braced or buttressed by anything, then the lateral cruise is going to rotate upward. That's why a cephalic trim causes rotation. There are some instances when you would like to, why would you want to do a cephalic trim other than getting rotation? Well, cephalic trim is useful to decrease bulbous characteristics of the nose, which are often seen in that area. And so a lot of times people want to do a cephalic trim to get rid of the, that bulbous feature and they're happy to have a little bit of rotation come with it. But there are instances where you don't want the rotation to come with it, and there are ways of dealing uh, with that. Um, I think it might be beyond the scope of this, but the point is is that um, with that maneuver, you will get rotation, and you will treat some bulbous features uh, of the nose as well. Other things that can help um, well, with rotation is if you have a patient with, a, with some caudal septal excess, and you do a caudal septal resection, depending on where you resect it along the caudal septum, if you resect some of the caudal septum along the anterior nasal spine, I'm sorry, what I meant is the anterior septal angle, then you'll get rotation. So resecting a portion of the caudal septum along the anterior septal angle will give rotation. If you remove some of the caudal septum that's more along the mid-septal angle or the posterior septal angle, then you can reduce columella show. I hope that that's clear. So yeah, so another, another way of, uh, of increasing rotation is uh, by dealing with the, the caudal septum. Calumella struts are also something that people talk about in, in reference to rotation. The calumella strut is placed between the medial curae and basically um, intend to hold the position of the tip in a desired place. It's a little bit tricky because they're only fixated typically, if, if at all, down near their base. And so you can get some movement of the calumella strut which can uh, change the angle, but um, if it's done properly, then you can set the angle of rotation at the desired uh, point with, with columella struts. And I do want to interrupt you for a second. 
what would be, we're frequently tested on this, and I want to ask what would be your steps for increasing tip projection? So say you make one maneuver to increase tip projection and that doesn't re achieve your desired result, then what would be your next step followed by your next step? So different surgeons are going to be different on this, and so I'm trying to think of it most in terms of what would be um, testable. Um, so things that, that support projection. Um, Kalyamella strut's always going to be one that will get um, asked, and that's still, it's still pretty popular. The suture techniques I mentioned, like the crural septal sutures, especially if you leave a lot of the ligaments uh, intact, which can be done, that's gaining some popularity. But the other one that we haven't mentioned that is important would be something called a septal extension graft. So a septal extension graft is basically an elongation of the caudal septum. You're grafting and making the caudal septum longer, and then when you put the, the medial curry back together, it, they're put together um, uh, alongside that extension graft. So they call it a tongue and groove technique. So basically it goes in between the medial curry, and you secure it there like you would a calumella strut. But unlike a calumella strut, the septal extension graft is a solid and non-moving extension of the caudal septum, whereas a calumella strut somewhat floats. I had alluded to that before, and so you're, you're sort of hoping with a calumella strut that it stays where you leave it. Well, with the septal extension graft, it isn't going anywhere. And people get a little bit upset sometimes about the stiffness to the nose that that can create. And so, um, you know, it's one of the things you have to talk to patients about because that tongue and groove septal extension graft is definitely going to make the nose a bit stiff. Great. And do you mind speaking to us a little bit about the different deformities of the nose? Um, polybeak deformity, boxy tip. Why, yes. Thank you, Rachel. I will talk about these. Um, so let's talk about poly, I guess polybeak first. Um, polybeak deformity is not typically a primary problem. Somebody doesn't walk in after having never had a rhinoplasty and has a polybeak. It's just not the way it, it, it things go. It's a secondary deformity, and it's usually the result of someone who's had an over-reduction of the dorsum and where the tip does not project uh, enough, and you haven't filled out the, the, the skin envelope elsewhere. So if you do an overreduction of the dorsum and the skin sleeve is just somewhat loose, um, you can get this fullness in the supertip area, which is predominantly skin and soft tissue. Ways that you could avoid that would be things like some people would use like radix grafting for some of the low radix because that takes up some space in the soft tissue envelope. And also just actually, just generally speaking, having the tip um, at, a, at a more ideal projection. So if you under project the tip in someone that you've done a lot of reduction on, you're probably going to get uh, a polybeak from that. But if you have the tip projected well, you'll have less of a chance of it. There's also some people who talk about securing the uh, skin and soft tissue along the um, super tip area. Um, so securing that down to the dorsum with an internal suture, um, and it helps you create that super tip break, which directly um, fights against you know the, the, the polybeak deformity developing. Um, there's a boxy tip. We talked about that. That's the, the wide angle of divergence. So in that instance, you're going to um, create some dome definition, you know, typically with sutures, intradomal sutures, and then you'll place an interdomal suture in such a way that you'll decrease uh, the, the uh, angle of divergence. And then after any of these maneuvers, like bulbous tip or boxy tip, you'll look at the lateral cruise curve bilaterally after you've done these things. And if they look convex, meaning too round, you can create, you can correct the convexity in the lateral cruise, which often accompanies both boxy and bulbous. You can correct that convexity uh, with a couple of different things. You can do batten grafts were originally invented for that, but there's also now the turnover or auto batten. So you turn the cephalic margin 
uh, of that lower lat under, which provides a batten effect. And then there are also suture techniques like um, uh, uh, Ron Gruber's described that actually uh, can help that. And I think we're about to get to that. And I'm going to add quickly that, uh, just like you mentioned, the lateral curl mattress suture is typically tested for correcting the convexity deformities of the bulbous tip. All right, so we're going to do a quick question that was tested on the 2015 in-service examination. So we have a 25-year-old woman. She undergoes a rhinoplasty to correct a bulbous tip. After a cephalic trim leaving 6 millimeters of lower lateral cartilage, transdomal sutures, and infracture, the tip continues to look bulbous. Heather, which of the following techniques is most likely to improve this persistent deformity? Additional cephalic trimming, collimalar stuck grafting, lateral curl mattress suture, shield grafting, or spreader grafting? Well, now that we've only left six millimeters of um, lower lateral cartilage, we can't do any more cephalic trimming. That's sort of the minimum. Uh, so I would say C, lateral curl mattress suture. Yep, that's correct. So yeah, the lateral curl mattress suture I had mentioned before, I was starting to mention, that's something that was described by Ron Gruber. Mattress sutures can correct curvatures. That's what he talked about. Curvature can be convexity of the lateral cruise. Curvature can be some some de uh, deviation or curvature along the septum. It can be in other areas. So uh, a mattress suture helps correct curvatures, and it is very useful for the exact problem that you just described. All right, now that we've had a very, very thorough discussion of nasal tip deformities, let's move on to the dorsum. Typically, the dorsum is addressed in two ways, by either reduction or augmentation. That's right. Some patients present with a dorsal hump. This may be addressed by hump reduction with a rasp, and this is done prior to manipulation of the septum because an adequate strut must be left in place. Several deformities may result from an overzealous hump reduction. Two are mainly tested, the inverted V deformity and the open roof deformity. Rachel, can you explain these? Inverted V deformity results when the nasal bones are separated from the upper lateral cartilage. Open roof deformity is the separation of the septum from the dorsal sidewalls. The correction of these deformities are com complex and not frequently tested, but they're there and so it's good to be aware. I have a question that I can add in here. So if you're doing a dorsal hump reduction, by the way, this is totally testable. If you, if you need to do a dorsal hump reduction in a patient that also requires septal cartilage harvest or septoplasty, which is done first? It would be the dorsal hump reduction. And why? Because you have to make sure you leave an adequate strut. What's an adequate strut? So I think this is going to be discussed in a second, but at least 10, 10 millimeters. But I think people like to leave a little bit extra, depending on who you talk to. Sorry if I, uh, if I, I, I came in with that question a little bit early, but it's still important. We always like to be put on the spot. <laughs> That's right. Commonly, septal cartilage grafts are used, diced or whole, auricular or costal cartilage, irradiated or synthetic implants. Remember the Turkish delight? Dorsal-only grafts may improve contour, whereas radix grafts are used typically for upper dorsal defects. Exactly. And more recently, fillers such as hydroxyapatite has been used for dorsal augmentation or liquid rhinoplasty. This is injection above the periosteum in the SMAS plane or subperichondrial plane. This should only be used for nasal dorsum and sidewalls. 
I have a couple points um, on that. Uh, first, um, you're right. You know, fillers are being used more often now, and it's not to say that they shouldn't or can't. Um, it's it's popular, but there are, as you can imagine, significant risks, uh, especially skin necrosis, which is disastrous. Um, people are using um, the uh, temporary fillers probably more frequently. So uh, the, the hyaluronic acid fillers are probably more commonly being used. Um, they can hide little pers you know, persistent contour irregularities, but that is not something necessarily for the new or novice, I would say. Um, you mentioned also about techniques for dorsal augmentation. And yeah, there are. I don't know that you're right. I don't think it gets tested all that much. Probably the, the historical um, standby, you know, the gold standard was uh, septal cartilage solid uh, dorsal graft. This is um, apart from doing a full like rib graft or cantilever bone graft. We're talking about just a more modest dorsal augmentation. So solid grafts of septal cartilage um, can be used. They have edges which are which can be palpable. That can be a little bit problematic. Um, there are some uh, processed cadav cadaveric cartilage uh, uh, options that are available now that weren't so available in the past, and um, that's a possibility to use as well. Again, you can use it as a solid graft. Some people will talk about using um, bruised or crushed cartilage, which where you can use ear cartilage or or any where you take away the you know the 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 form of it so that you can avoid having um, those any sharp angles. But those are typically smaller and only used for more uh, minor sort of fillers or fill-ins. Um, and then the last one you mentioned was the the Turkish delight. And just for the sake of conversation, I'll just mention that as well. A little detail: Honor Errol was a Turkish surgeon or is a Turkish surgeon who has done thousands of these, and he originally described using diced cartilage, really finely diced cartilage, you could obtain it from anywhere, and wrapped it in Surgicel, uh, and then uh, used it as an autologous implant. And um, we kind of, you know, thought it was interesting. He called it the Turkish delight. That always got some laughs, but um, it was remarkable, actually, at how well it initially worked. But it was better when it was later, um, later revised, the concept to use uh, fascia, temporal fascia, rather than Surgicel. So now they refer to it as DCF, dice cartilage fascia. So if you hear anybody say DCF graft, um, uh, that's what they mean, and that probably should be credited to uh, Roland Daniel and Jay Calvert. All right, now that our nasal tip looks great, our dorsum looks great, we have to address our osteotomies. Well, there are several different methods for osteotomies. The main goal is to narrow or widen the bony vault. Medial osteotomies should be performed prior to the lateral osteotomies. The main test question we are asked is regarding the primary complication of osteotomies. Do you know what this is? I believe this is rocker deformity. This occurs after medial osteotomies that go beyond the thick portion of the radix, causing rocking of the lateral portion distally after positioning of the proximal portion more medially. Those are great points. One thing you mentioned is that typically, you know, the, the, the order of doing the osteotomy is medial and lateral. People sometimes wonder, why do you even do a medial osteotomy? What's, why is that even necessary? If you have a patient that you, where you've removed a very large dorsal hump and a portion, a significant component of the hump is bone, then you've created a bit of an opening, a triangular-shaped opening up at the top of the nasal bones so that you can easily move the nasal bones inward to fill the space that you just created after having done the hump resection. But if the hump reduction is modest, or if it isn't that much osseous, and if you have not created a triangular defect up in the upper third, then when you try to move the, the nasal bone medially inward, you won't move. It won't go. 
and you can create a rocker deformity just from that alone because you can green stick or break the you know that nasal bone which creates this irregularity along there so the reason for doing medial osteotomies is when you want to really medialize the bones um, and you have basically you're creating an opening wedge so you're taking out a, a, a small portion of that bone up up above that's typically what people mean by that and then the other question that might come up I can I think is that they talk about are we going to get to low to low or I'll mention one thing about that. When people talk about low and high, what they're what they're referring to is if the osteo how how close the osteotomy is made to the face of the maxilla. If it's made right along the face of the maxilla, so right along that you know along that uh, the base of the bone, that's low. The further up you go along the nasal bones away from the face, that's high. Osteotomies that are done high are often palpable, um, so people can feel them. So typically we tend to, uh, at this point, low to low is probably the most common. So you're staying at a place where you can't feel it later on. The only other thing just to mention is that um, at the very, at the caudal edge of the nasal bone, laterally, low, that's quite near like where the, um, uh, the, inferior, the inferior turbinate head is. Um, and some people believe that if you move uh, that, that inferior most aspect of the nasal bone low, inward that you can narrow the valve and so they um, often refer to that it's called Webster's triangle and they try to stay just above that um, and then they get down to their low position. So lastly let's move to the nasal ala. Grafts here are typically typically used for contour but excisions can also be employed if the ala themselves are large. Right. These grafts are typically anatomic or non-anatomic and include alar batten grafts, rim grafts, lateral curl strut grafts, turnover grafts. Heather, what graft would you employ for external nasal valve collapse? Well, as Dr. Marcus uh, alluded to earlier, you could use several of these, but the commonly tested answer is the alar batten graft for external nasal valve collapse. Alar batten grafts are the frequently tested answer for external nasal valve collapse. Knowing the placement of this is important. For the other grafts, lateral curl strut grafts are placed underneath the lateral cura for after cephalic trim. This can correct malposition or valve collapse as well as concavity or boxy tip. I think this would be kind of a good time to talk about the difference between a batten graft and a lateral curl strut because I don't necessarily think that everybody gets this. The, a batten graft, and I mentioned it before, is a graft that's either put on top of the lateral cruise, or you could put it underneath the lateral cruise if you wanted to. Um, it could be done using that turnover technique, which is the auto batten. The thing is about a batten graft is it does not typically actually extend all the way to the piriform. Most people actually usually put a batten graft on top of the lateral cruise and usually limit it to the length of the lateral cruise itself. And that can be useful for an external valve collapse, especially one where there's a big kind of a concavity that's present. So I give you that. The thing about a lateral curl strut is that the lateral curl strut was originally described by Jack Gunter and it extended the entire length of the lateral cruise and went all the way to the piriform, either with or without anchorage into a pocket and that, or that kind of thing. My opinion on this, and um, I think that if you're faced with an exam question that gives you only the batten graft as an option, then you can pick the batten graft because that can be helpful in, a, in, a, in an external valve collapse. But if lateral curl strut is included in the question, that's your answer. Let's talk about um, other forms of ALR grafts, like ALR rim grafts, turnover grafts, and corrections for wide ALA. Yeah, I can mention, I can, I can speak to that a little bit. 
So let's start with an easy one, um, the ALR rim graph. So what's an ALR rim graph? It's basically a really skinny uh, cartilage graph that's put right along the ALR rim in a subcutaneous pocket, and it's parallel to the ALR rim. And it's really helpful for creating, or for help, uh, it's helpful for treating retractions, um, but it's also great to use in primary cases to create a really nice straight rim instead of having a rim that has a convexity or a concavity to it. Uh, it's nice to have the, the tip when viewed from below look like kind of a, an equilateral triangle, and it can make a really nice straight ALA. In fact, a lot of surgeons now are using ALAR rim grafts in 80 or 90% of their cases. I, I'm one of them. I love them. They can be put in kind of antegrade or retrograde. There's two ways of doing that. But um, yeah, that's enough of that. But uh, we mentioned the ALAR batten graft. We talked about that. It's helpful in supporting the, the lower lateral cartilage. Um, let's see. Um, ALAR contour grafts. So, um, that's something to mention. Uh, Rod Rorick calls ALR rim grafts ALR contour grafts, so you might see that as in terms of vocabulary. I don't want you to get confused. They're, they're the same thing. Um, talking about uh, over-resection of, uh, of the lower lateral, so particularly so if you have in a secondary case, if the lower lateral cartilage has been over-resected, meaning they've left a rim of you know, four millimeters or less, then you've destabilized uh, that lateral cruise. So what would you do for somebody who has been completely destabilized, they've resected too much? Yeah, I think you could do a lateral curl strut graft. Exactly. That's the exact answer. So um, if you're going to put in a lateral curl strut, um, now if the patient's already been over, has been over-resected, um, you're probably going to apply it on top. But if you have a patient that has just an unstable or weak lateral cruise and you want that, the stability of that lateral curl strut and you want to hide it, hidden graft's always better than visible graft, so putting it underneath um, is, is great, and it can be done right after your cephalic trim. You make a pocket that goes all the way out to the piriform. Um, I won't ask you this because I, I don't know. Uh, maybe you'll get it. But uh, if you're going to make your pocket out to the piriform, what direction do you aim for? Where do you aim? I would go for the lateral campus. That's right. So the, the lateral cruise is, uh, is angled toward the lateral campus. If a patient's lateral cruise, their native lateral cruise, is angled up toward the medial campus, then people refer to that as vertical orientation of the lower lateral cartilage. And I think we're probably going to get to it, but that's an important point to make too. So if you're going to create a pocket for a lateral for a lateral curl strut uh, and you want to secure it, you should secure it in the, in the proper position, which aims out to the, uh, to the lateral uh, campus. Does that result in parentheses tip? Yeah. A vertically oriented, vertically oriented lower lateral cartilage is if you can imagine that, if you imagine that the lateral curry are aiming sort of upward toward the medial canthus, then basically the whole lateral half of the ala has no cartilage in it. Um, it's just, it's just sort of, um, you know, it's kind of un, unsupported. Um, and so when you're looking at somebody like that, uh, it looks like the tip of the nose uh, is bounded by a pair of parentheses. It creates kind of this depression, a little, almost like a little bit of a groove. And Dr. Marcus, how would you address wide ALA? Oh, wide ALA, um, you know, so there's a, a few things. I don't think we're going to get too much into the details on it, but, you know, you can have um, a wide ALAR base or you can have ALAR flaring. That's another thing. So there's a whole variety of things, a lot of ethnic rhinoplasties involved. So, but in general, if you're just, as a general point, if you're correcting, quote, unquote, a wide ALAR base or wide ALA, then typically that's done through wedge excisions and, some people sometimes call those weir excisions because weir described them, I think, originally for clefts. Um, but it's not exactly done uh, the way that weir described it. The, the question that sometimes comes up is where do you place the incision? 
uh, for an ALR base excision. So let's not call it weir, I guess, but let's call it ALR base excision. It's put right in the crease. Some people used to put it a millimeter or two above the crease, but then it was visible. So nobody does that anymore. So moving on to the functional portion of rhinoplasty or septoplasty, let's talk about airway obstruction. Heather, we spoke about this a little bit before, but how is this typically evaluated? So in terms of imaging, um, this can be evaluated in a number of different ways, including nasal endoscopy, CT scan, or rhinomanometry. That's a good point. So what if you don't do endoscopy? Is it, uh, is it okay to get a CT scan uh, as, a, as a surrogate for it? Absolutely. So if you're, if you're a surgeon with some background in endoscopy, what you're really trying to do is see the posterior vault, the part that you can't see with anterior rhinoscopy. Anterior rhinoscopy, by the way, is the thing that you do when you're using a speculum. It lets you see about the anterior half of the airway. The posterior half of the airway just isn't visible there. If you have an endoscope and you know how to use it, you can look at the posterior airway that way. But if you don't, then a CT scan is a, is a perfectly reasonable surrogate for that. In fact, it'll also give you some visualization of the sinuses. So if you have a patient who has um, a history of sinus disease and you want to evaluate for whether or not they have an ongoing problem, it's a great idea. If you have a patient who's had a prior functional surgery, so they're trying to improve their airway, but they didn't get better, that's a good patient to get a CT scan on too, because there might be something posteriorly that the person was not aware of before. Great. And just to reiterate um, that rhinomanometry is used for dynamic evaluation. This was tested a couple years ago on the in-service. And Heather, what are some of the causes of nasal obstruction? Well, we talked about ALR collapse, um, but also deviated septum can cause functional airway obstruction uh, as well as turbinate hypertrophy. Deviated septum is one of the most common reasons for functional airway obstruction. There are many ways to treat this, as Dr. Marcus alluded to, including resection, scoring, strut, suture, or graft. Spreader grafts may be placed between the dorsal septum and upper lateral cartilage in the submucoperichondrial pocket to widen the angle and improve the airway. Heather, if this is harvested from the septum, how much strut should be left? Well, since we talked about it earlier, just to review, um, the L strut should be at least 10 millimeters and should be left uh, to prevent septal collapse and saddle nose deformity. What is a saddle nose deformity? Saddle nose deformity is a collapsed dorsum from a dorsal septal fracture. This is typically reconstructed with cartilage spreader grafts. Oh yeah, that's right. And what is the normal internal nasal valve angle again? 15 degrees. Turbinate hypertrophy may also be a cause of airway obstruction. Remember, the contralateral side of septal deviation typically has compensatory turbinate hypertrophy. This can be addressed by two different methods, outfracture or submucosal resection. But remember not to take too much. Empty nose syndrome results from complete removal of the inferior turbinate. That's great. You guys covered that, uh, covered that really well. So um, internal valve problems, internal valve stenosis treated with spreader grafts. Septal deviations treated with a variety of techniques depending on what type of deviation they have. And that's something where you can refer to Dr. Guyron's article, um, whether it could be a septal tilt, a C-shaped deviation, an S-shaped deviation, or a combination of them. Um, you mentioned the turbinate, uh, turbinate hypertrophy, um, and well done, and noting that it's on the compens you know, compensatory turbinate hypertrophy occurs on the opposite side of the deviation. That's something we see in clefts all the time. And there are tons of ways, actually, to deal with turbinate hypertrophy, uh, many more than most plastic surgeons typically do. 
um, you hear about things like um, there's cryotherapy, there's um, needle cauterization, um, there is um, uh, high-frequency um, uh, uh, ultrasonic uh, treatment, um, and then also you have turbinectomy, which isn't really performed anymore, and you explained, you alluded to why. Um, there's submucosal resection, um, and then there's lateralization, or some people call it outfracture. So the, of the things that are out there, and then there's more than what I even mentioned there, but um, of the ones that are, you mentioned, the ones that most plastic surgeons are most familiar with are outfracture, lateralization, or submucous resection. So these vary in terms of how effective they are and what risks they have. So lateralization, so simple outfracture, is the least risky thing you can do but it's also one of the least effective. So it might help for a, uh, some short period of time, but typically um, those patients end up coming back and getting something more definitive done later. Um, the submucous resection can be done nowadays in one of two ways. One is by um, uh, elevating the, uh, the, um, the submucosa and the mucosa from the concha and resecting a small portion of it from the inferior most aspect of the inferior turbinate and then putting a couple of sutures in to put it back together. That's one. The other is by using something called a microdebreeder. And it's basically, if you can imagine, like a really tiny arthroscopic knee, knee shaver uh, placed inside the turbinate and you're basically kind of coring out, not necessarily bone, but mostly the erectile uh, tissue in the submucosa. You can, you can reduce some bone using that technique as well. And any of these techniques, um, you can also um, specifically remove concha bone with a pituitary rangeur if osseous hypertrophy uh, is present. And you would know that because you did an afrin challenge that we talked about at the very beginning. And we have one question, Dr. Marcus, that hopefully you can help us with. This is from the 2015 in-service test. Um, a 30-year-old man comes to the office because of symptoms of nasal airway obstruction. Physical exam shows a septal C-shaped deformity, which we talked about earlier, Without dorsal deviation, caudal maneuver is negative, and external nasal valves are competent. Which of the following is the most appropriate surgical management? Alar batten grafting, columellar strut grafting, septoplasty, spreader grafting, or submucous septal resection? Heather? For this question, I would say submucous septal resection. So that is the right answer. Um, Obviously, alar batten grafting, columnar strut grafting, and spreader grafting are incorrect because his external nasal valve and internal nasal valves are not the issue. However, I would like Dr. Marcus to um, explain to us the difference between septoplasty and submucous septal resection and a little bit why that's the correct answer. So I think it might be, this one might be a question where there's some semantics that are involved and... Um, I don't personally, not to, not, not to criticize, I don't know that I would have written it that way myself, but um, I think what they're, what they're getting at is a submucous septal resection is a removal of the deviated portion uh, of the septum. And in this case, there's a C-shaped deformity, but without some, with, and they mentioned without dorsal deviation, but there's still a C-shaped deformity probably along the mid-septum. And so basically you're taking out that, that portion of the mid-septum, the mid, you know, middle of the quadrangular cartilage, um, and then basically just leave the rest where it is, right? So um, that's what that one is dealing with. I think when they talk about, so that's submucous septal resection, I would say. I think septoplasty, um, I think from a historical point of view, um, is it can refer to straightening the native septum without actually removing any of it. That's what I think they're getting at. And so I think there's some, some semantics there. So how would you do that? So, well, there's a couple ways. I mean, number one is that you could do 
by, let's say, for example, um, in a septal tilt, by removing the inferior most portion of the quadrangular cartilage, it creates kind of like a, um, like a swinging door. Like the bottom is sort of free floating so that if it's off to one side, then it can basically just, you know, can move back towards center. Or if you have angulation um, of, the, of the septum and you've got full exposure and you score it and uh, basically leave it in position without taking any away, I think that would um, be called a septoplasty. But you see what I mean? I think it's a little bit misleading. And finally, we are to complications of rhinoplasty. Probably the most serious complication is CSF leak. Heather, how does this happen and how would you diagnose? Well, this would be bad, uh, but the dura may be torn from disruption of the perpendicular plate. Patients may complain of water, watery rhinorrhea or headaches. Test for beta-2 transferrin. Unfortunately, this is a send-out test and a long wait. Treatment is typically conservative with watchful waiting and antibiotics. The next complication is septal perforation. This occurs after bilateral mucosal tears. Heather, what would patients complain about? Patients typically complain of crusting, whistling, and or bleeding. Treatment is with local flaps and cartilage grafts. That's correct. I think that's, a, that's good. I think one good point to make there is that you mentioned that it usually occurs when you have bilateral mucosal tears, and it usually has to be when they're actually directly opposing one another. So if you have two small tears and they're not located near one another, then you won't necessarily end up with a, with a perforation. So the other part, and the other part you mentioned about um, the, the signs, whistling actually is the thing that bugs people the most, and usually those occur when the, when the perforations are a little bit more anterior and they're a little bit on the smaller side and you get that annoying whistle, and that's why people would come and, and, and ask for a surgical correction. And correcting septal perforations is pretty tough. I don't know that I've seen this on the exam before, but just for folks to know, I think that um, if they're relatively small, they can be treated, and a reasonable way to do that is by elevating the, the mucosal leaves completely again and putting an interposition graft. And it doesn't have to be cartilage, although it could be. You could also use a piece of alloderm, which is um, uh, pretty common. Uh, and then uh, as far as local flaps go, if you mobilize them and they can't be just closed directly, then people do something kind of like the yin and yang flaps. On one side, do it one way, and the other side, do it the other way, um, you know, making rotational flaps just in, you know, in opposition. Um, and that's actually a pretty reasonable way to do it. But I personally wouldn't um, attempt to close uh, 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 any of these huge defects because I just don't think you can. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our first In-Service Insights. We welcome you to tune in for our next lectures and more to come.